from the high desert of northern New Mexico, this is Circle for Original Thinking. I am your host, Glenn Aparicio Perry. Welcome to Circle for Original Thinking, America's electronic talking circle for visionary thinkers. An open forum for fresh ideas and timeless wisdom applied to today's political and ecological challenges. Each week, we bring together creative thinkers from a variety of different traditions. We ask the hard questions on the important issues of the day. Political polarization, climate change, virulent viruses, and other symptoms of humanity being out of balance with the natural world. Our goal is to recreate a whole and sacred America, a new and improved version of E Pluribus Unum, from the many to the one, And this time, not leave anybody out. Join us as we embark on this quest. To say humanity is living unsustainably is a massive understatement. In the words of Oren Lyons, faith keeper of the Turtle Clan of the Onondaga Nation, humanity is like a jockey whipping its horse faster and faster to get to the finish line, not realizing that the finish line is a brick wall. The proliferation of nuclear weapons did not make us change. The ecological movement of the 60s and 70s, ushered in by Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, helped awaken us. But not enough. After some modest improvements, the soil, air, and waters remain polluted. The rainforests continue to be cut down at an alarming rate. Temperatures continue to rise along with the seas. It seemed we were beyond hope for change, and that we are now living in the age of consequences. Then a tiny virus did what no social movement has done. It shut everything down. The incessant pressure of human economic activity ground to a halt. Amid the human death toll, the natural world was granted a reprieve. In the midst of the pandemic, a police officer kept his foot on George Floyd's neck, causing him to die, but giving birth to a renewed social justice movement. Social justice and ecological justice are invariably connected. The Floyd murder was a metaphor for what humanity had been doing to Mother Earth. We had been keeping our foot on her neck, paving over the natural world to pursue our short-sighted economic interests. It was Mother Earth that could not breathe. If we did not change, much of the natural world would die. In this edition of Circle for Original Thinking, we explore how we might learn to live in a different way, renew our relationship with the more-than-human world, honor the wisdom of nature and of our ancestors, and reimagine education to be an agent of change rather than merely a reflection of the current society. We have never lived through a time exactly like this, but we have lived through crises before. We know from experience that every crisis presents both danger and opportunity. The opportunity now seems clear. We must gather all our resources, the perennial wisdom of the past and the most brilliant minds of the present to make a course correction. Our guests today are Jim Garrison, current president of Ubiquity University, and Will Tegel, former dean of Ubiquity University. Join us as we address humanity in crisis on the next episode of Circle for Original Thinking. Now I want to introduce our guests. 
Dr. Will Tegel walks in two dimensions. One reflects his lifelong connection with the indigenous mind-heart and the other his psychological and scientific research. While both his doctorate degrees concentrate on the synergy of eco-psychology and the matrix of field physics, he counts his shamanic training described in his book Walking with Bears as the most important of his life. Walking with Bears completes a trilogy of books that includes Wild Heart and Mother Tongue, all address a human return to Earth-based consciousness. Will is the former dean for the Wisdom School of Graduate Studies at Ubiquity University in Austin, Texas. He is an experienced psychotherapist with a demonstrated history of working in the education management industry, and he holds a doctor of ministry focused in family systems therapy and spirituality from University of California at Berkeley. Welcome, Will. Now, Dr. James Garrison. Dr. Garrison is founder and president of Ubiquity University, originally serving as the founding president of Wisdom University, which he led from 2005 to 2012, after which it transitioned into Ubiquity. He has spent his entire professional life in executive leadership, including as founder and president of both the Gorbachev Foundation USA from 1992 to 1995 and the State of the World Forum from 1995 to 2004, with Mikhail Gorbachev serving as convening chairman. He attended the University of Santa Clara for his BA in History, Harvard, for his master's in history of religion, and Cambridge for his PhD in philosophical theology. He has written seven books, beginning with The Plutonium Culture in 1979, to his current book on uh, that he is now writing called Climate Change and the Primordial Mind. He taught regularly throughout his tenure at Wisdom University on Greek philosophy, world history, and the philosophical implications of global warming. And he continues to teach at Ubiquity. So, all right. Welcome again. Um, all right. Uh, the first question I'm going to ask, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask of Jim, and he'll know why I'm asking of him when he hears the question. So, so why is it? that after billions of years of evolution, our species, Homo sapiens, have brought us to the brink of destruction. And you're going to take a shot at that too, Will, but, but first to Jim, and he knows why. Yes. Go ahead. Why is it, Jim? Well, uh, Glenn, you're asking the $64,000 question, which was actually the uh, topic of my doctoral dissertation at Cambridge uh, but um, I would say in just a, a minute or two, uh, the answer uh, that I uh, provided in a very complex situation uh, it was along the following lines. You know, the Abrahamic religions entered into the conversation in deep antiquity with a new metaphysical principle of dualism. Uh, before the rise of the Abrahamic religions, there was a really a consensus from China to India to Mesopotamia uh, to Egypt to Greece to Mesoamerica that we were in a unitary cosmos, that there was the transmigration of souls. It was universally believed that 
life now and life after and life before were an interrelated whole, uh, and that ethical principles govern uh, the transmigration of souls, uh, but that everything was cyclic and interconnected. And what emerged uh, with the Abrahamic religions was a contrary point of view based on the metaphysic of dualism, a separation from between the created uh, and the creator, uh, the notion of linear time, not cyclic time, um, the uh, negation of the transmigration of souls. Uh, and that developed in the world, but particularly in Western civilization, a metaphysic not of unity, but a metaphysic of power. And that power was exercised um, uh, violently. Uh, and it's, it's important for us in the West in particular to bear in mind that very deeply embedded in the Western metaphysical tradition is not only the notion of linear as opposed to cyclic time, uh, but the notion that linear time is going to end in an apocalyptic self-destruction. And uh, I want to just set that aside and uh, bring in one final piece, and that is the observation of Carl Jung. Uh, one of the most important uh, essays uh, that Carl Jung wrote, the great psychologist and successor to Freud in the middle part of the 20th century uh, was written in, in uh, the fall of 1945. It's called After the Catastrophe. And he said, basically, we've just witnessed the Holocaust. We've just witnessed the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And he says, my friends, we have to take in that that is a curtain raiser for what is about ready to come. And what he observed is that the rise and fall of the Christian religion was really coterminous with the 2,000-year cycle of the Zodiac. Uh, we've been in the age of Pisces. And that what we've experienced is the great enantiodromia between 2,000 years ago, the world experiencing the likeness of God in the manifestation of the man Jesus, Till now, it's turned into its opposite, uh, into the darkness of God. And that's worth reflecting upon um, uh, theologically, uh, but it's also worth reflecting upon in a secular physical term, that what we're experiencing in our day is the fusion between theological apocalypse and I would say secular apocalypse, world events, physically, in the world, are mirroring the apocalyptic prophecies about the end of time, not only in the Judeo-Christian-Islamic uh, tradition, but in many indigenous traditions, in the Buddhist tradition, uh, in the Hindu tradition. So we are experiencing in our generation, you know, all the, the dark trains coming into the station at once. And we're quite literally at that moment of potential self-destruction where scientists are telling us uh, all over the world that this next decade of the 2020s uh, may be the most consequential uh, in the history of the species and therefore the decisions that we're making um, are um, of great import 
but the answer to your question about why it is that after billions of years of evolutionary life, that our species in our generation mm. has brought, brought it to the point of, of complete self-destruction uh, is an extremely important one, uh, the answer of which is complex, but emanates, in my view, to a large degree because of the presence of the Abrahamic religions in world culture um, and the rise of uh, technology um, devoid of any ethical consciousness and economic systems uh, that are coalescing at the end of the age of Pisces in a, in a coalescence of darkness. Wow, what a terrific... I think you, you, you articulated that in about five minutes, which is pretty amazing. Um, th thank you very much. Uh, not many people could do that. And, uh, and the fact that you've studied these issues and thought about it a lot uh, doesn't make it any easier to say it in a short bit of time. Um, or, you know, and time is one of my favorite subjects. <laughs> It's very much one of my favorite subjects, and I, I pray to Creator now that we, that we have uh, awareness of the infinity of time. Time is infinite in a way, and it's and uh, we're just playing with these linear notions. I mean, a day is real, uh, a year is real, but things like minutes and hours are just we're just chopping it up, and we're saying that arbitrarily. And I, I I'm very blown away by your answer. Thank you very much. I'm going to turn it over to Will. Same question. Why is it that after billions of years of evolution, our species, Homo sapiens, have brought us to the brink of extinction? Oh, oh, thank you so much, Jim, for that summary. And I would add to that, after many conversations that Jim and I have had through the years, that the Abrahamic religions are one-third of the, the uh, brinksmanship of our day, the other two being um, uh, the uh, Greek philosophy and Renaissance as one piece. Uh, in that, what I mean by that is uh, we could visit Plato's cave and see that <clears throat> Plato saw the inner world of the Mother Earth as something to escape from and then led us in the direction of uh, splitting the feminine from the masculine. And that is, uh, I'm sure we can flesh that out. But perhaps more important is the fact that that we have a science of the 20th, the latter part of the 19th century and the 20th century that got more and more involved in reducing reality to the smallest part. Reducing that. And followed Karl Popper's, Popper's uh, dictum of falsifiability. And we know that science, even today, 
not so much with the more progressive scientists, but with the mainstream scientists, have an inability, as David Baum said, to entertain two perspectives at once as both being uh, important and reliable. One has to be less false, false than the other, and then throwing out the uh, second one because it didn't meet the standards. A good example of this would be the turn of the 20th century. We had uh, an understanding of the universe that included ether. Uh, even, uh, in fact, uh, Jung uh, continued to use that uh, description in his work. But with the advent of Einstein's theory of relativity and so on, uh, ether was thrown out uh, and, and laughed at for much of the 20th century until we discovered dark matter and dark energy and realized that 95% uh, thereabouts of the universe is not perceivable in the usual ways that we think. And so while ether is not an accurate description, neither is it worthy of being thrown out. And we see this in climate change, for example. Uh, you have the CO2 uh, example. And I'm pointing here that, <clears throat> that the, we've gotten ourselves in the predicament that I would say is not billions of years old. I would say it's about 5,000 years old. And more acutely, uh, uh, more recently, especially through uh, the falsifiability point of view of uh, mainstream 20th century science. So with the CO2 hypothesis, uh, one of my he heroes uh, in, in climate sciences is Catherine Hayhoe. And Catherine has been recognized by so many different uh, organizations as being one of our foremost climate scientists. She's uh, actually out not too far from you, Glenn, at Texas Tech. And she's in atmospheric science. So the science that we get with CO2 is basically an examination of the atmosphere. There's another point of view. And, and by the way, I, I pretty much accept that science. But there's an alternative hypothesis that has to do with galactic debris and solar science and so on that gives us a different science uh, with regard to climate change. It, too, is apoco apocalyptic. But I'm saying these are examples of how we get into a binary way of thinking without being able, as David Baum said, to hold two perspectives at once and see them as, see, as perceiving the elephant in the room from different perspectives. So those are a few of my comments about how we got ourselves here. And uh, I also would add, and I, we can talk more about this later, but I would add that it's very important. See, part of the way the Renaissance and the uh, Reformation is building on Greek philosophy uh, was a solution at the time to a unitary way of thinking that was absolute in the Catholic Church. 
and so on. So it was it was a solution at the time. But in systems theory, we know that solutions often become the next level problem. Say that again. Solutions often become the next level problem. And yeah, so uh, what 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 was the solution has put human beings at the center of of everything we talk about, and contextually, if you take the four and a half billion years, uh, well, maybe not so much. And I know it's popular right now to refer to our age in ecological circles as the Anthropocene age. But I think, once again, we're inside the paradigm that humans are the center of everything. And there may be something going on here that's much bigger than our contribution, which is pivotal and requires our full attention, but it also requires that we begin, in my view, in the return to a deep consideration of ancient wisdom with a profound humility about our role in the process. Thank you. Thank you. Will, I want to jump in there. I mean, uh, there's so much that both of you have said that are really uh, very evocative. I mean, if you think about it, you know, you're talking, Will, about what's happened within the last 5,000 years or and a lot that's happened is only within the last 600 years, really, you know, is when you, um, from the Renaissance forward. Um, and you both use the word apocalypse, but um, I'm sure you're, you're both aware that the, that the original meaning of apocalypse is an unveiling or a revelation. So it may be that something is being unveiled and revealed here along with the possible destruction the destructive aspects, the common use of the word apocalypse has definitely come in, too. But, uh, um, and when I think about the Renaissance and, and what you just said, Will, is, you know, talking about looking backward to go forward, well, well, or looking back to ancient wisdom, that was the, that was the symbol of the Renaissance. So they, you know, they were Janus-faced. I mean, they, they were looking backward to the ancient wisdom in some cases from the Greeks, um, uh, to move forward. And it's only later, as you know, the Renaissance leads into what we tend to call the scientific revolution, that we, that we kind of move things forward. We started to turn our attention all forward, right? So I, I, I tend to focus a lot on linear perspective that happened. We know exactly when that happened. You know, just over 600 years ago, Brunichelli pokes a hole in a painting and he, and he puts a mirror behind it because he wants to paint the world as God saw the world. Um, and he had the best of intentions. But somehow out of that, we, we, tended to, we tended to then, we did move the way, like you're saying, Will, just now. We did move humans into the center. We moved the eye as the center of consciousness. And we looked out on the world and... And things that were close to us, we called the you know uh, uh, you know the near future. Things that were distant from us, we called the distant future. And we started to focus on moving in a line away from origin, you know. And that, going back to what Jim is saying, I mean, that's really when we we have 
moved from this, um, I think what you, you know, this uh, recycling, the transmigration of souls, this kind of hanging out with the energies of a particular place, right? That's the way we used to operate. And we somehow, we now take away we substitute time for place, and that's what we call progress, and that's what, right? I mean, I think you both can agree, like, if you ask a Western cosmologist about the origin of the universe, what's he going to talk about? He's only going to talk about time, you know, 13.8 billion years ago or something. He never talks about place. But if you ask a, you know, a Hopi elder, he's going to take you to where the little Colorado and the big Colorado confluence is, right? And then he's going to be interested in place where they emerge, the Sipapu. So, yeah, this, boy, you guys touched on a lot of incredible stuff. I want to shift because I don't want to get, I don't want to, you know, get too, too philosophical here. So I want to shift a little bit to talking about education because, You've actually set the table with it, you know. Uh, somebody I have a lot of respect for, Leroy Little Bear, the uh, uh, the founder of Canada's first Native Studies program um, at the University of Lethbridge, and he's been he was there uh, as the as the head of the University of Lethbridge program for over twenty years before he became the director of Native Studies at Harvard. I don't know if you ran into him there, Jim, ever. Um, and then later, um, much later, he became the moderator of the Seed Dialogues, the institution that I started was Seed. And so I got to know Leroy well, and he's an amazing moderator. Um, and what Leroy said about education, and cause since you both are visionaries in education, I want to put this out there right there. Is he, said, he said, education is renewal. Education is renewal. And I, I want to ask you both to respond to that. What do you think he meant by that? Do you agree with him? And, and, and expound upon it if you can. And if, I'm sure you can. So uh, we'll go to Jim first, I think, again. Oh, lost audio. Let me just tie this in, uh, Glenn, uh, with the previous connection uh, or the, the previous uh, conversation, because I think there's a connection uh, between apocalypse and renewal. Um, and I, I want to just take a moment to reflect on the original formulation of apocalypse. Uh, it emerged in the, in the Jewish mind uh, between about the third, second, uh, first centuries uh, B.C., at a time when everything in their world had been turned upside down uh, by the generals who succeeded Alexander the Great. Uh, and uh, uh, Moses had taught them that if you were good, God would bless you. And they found themselves in a situation where if you were good, you were a good Orthodox Jew, you were being persecuted by the uh, uh, Seleucids. And you'll remember your history of the great Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, who uh, went into the Holy of Holies and put a statue of Zeus 
uh, and it was a it was a blasphemy to the Jews. But there is no way out of the conundrum, and that was the origin of the theological speculations about apocalypse. Because they said the only way for this to be solved is if God breaks through history, destroys the world as we know it, and creates something new. However, that never happened. What happened instead was a new phenomenon began to emerge right in the middle of their apocalyptic torment, and that was the phenomenon of Sophia. That was the feminine. And that's a very important uh, 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 archetype for us to contemplate today. That even though the, the, the true believers were waiting for the God ex mechana, ex, uh, mechana out of the blue to come down and solve the problem, what was really happening was a transformation of the human spirit catalyzed by the feminine principle and it was through the apocalyptic times that Sophia, wisdom, began to emerge and that led to a whole new way of being, a whole new renewal of the human spirit. And that's why, as you pointed out, the true meaning of apocalypse is revelation. It's the renewal. It's the taking the veils off of your eyes so you can truly see, um, as Will was saying a few minutes ago, that when you go into the cave, that's where you see the light. So that it's in the darkness that the light begins to truly shine. And it's a she. And that's very important that the individuation process, the, the renewal process is catalyzed by the feminine principle in the psyche. And it's worth mentioning just globally for a moment here that in the what happened in world history in the aftermath of Hiroshima and Nagasaki and the Holocaust and that moment on August 6, 1945, when for the first time in human history, we not only had the prospect of individual death, but species death, what emerged out was the women's movement. So that the, the, the movement of women's liberation, the movement that we're seeing today of the, the, the fluidity around gender and the rise of Eros and all of its manifest forms of gender and sexuality and bi and trans and, and pan and, and, and so forth and so on is completely predictable at that moment of maximum duress and danger for self-destruction. So that's the first point that I would want to make about this question of renewal. It's embedded in the ontology of the evolutionary order of things. That when we meander as the evolution does and we lose track and we forget who we are and we start to hurt each other and hurt nature as we're doing and then all of a sudden we feel like the world is ending, it is ending. And then what begins to bubble up from the inside out is a feminine renewal that transforms our consciousness and leads us into the new way. Mm. And education, uh, thinking of education also in terms of the Latin 
root educari is is that process through which the student is led forth it's a bringing forth of something that you actually remember about the deep past hmm. um okay i'm gonna i'm gonna come back to you in a second jim but to to will what do you think leroy little bear meant when he said education is renewal that's a beautiful answer jim thank you And, and Will, while you're I thinking say, about that, I just want to add one thing. Thank you. <laughs> so I'm going to give you a moment more. Uh, but, but thank you, Jim, for bringing up Hiroshima and Nagasaki and wisdom and Sophia because it so happens that my, my wife is Tomoko. She's from Japan. Tomoko means Sophia in Japanese, the particular kanji she has. Um, it could also mean brightness, but, but, but this one, this one means wisdom. Uh, and, uh, uh, it's a, it's a, I don't know if you've ever read Hiroshima, 50 Years of Denial by, uh, um, by two authors. Incredible book I want to put out there that goes through and shows how the United States used propaganda to justify that action. Um, and Powerful anyway, book. I turn over to, I turn over to Will. Uh, the uh, the floor. What did Leroy mean by education is renewal? Well, I, I had no idea what Leroy meant, but I know what I uh, interpreted, and that is uh, actually three aspects of an emerging model of education as I see it that is earth-centered would be first, interestingly enough, service. So renewal begins with a kind of humble serving that is intertwined with the challenges and the suffering that we go through. So you see this in, in sweat lodges, you see this in uh, Sundance, and you see this in other uh, indigenous practices, and you see this embodied in, in the uh, man Jesus. To a certain extent, you see it in Buddha. But out of, it, it's only out of the suffering that we begin to be renewed. And I'll give you an example. Um, we, we in Texas are basically captivated by our own arrogance. And we got ourselves into a fix with this uh, grid because uh, most of my life, the myth has been that Texas has the best grid in the world because of all of our petrochemical riches and so we didn't tie in cooperatively with other with the two other grids and so in february we we uh, really suffered and that suffering except for a few who could uh, fly their planes to cancun and so on uh but by and large we we suffered and 
Judith and I were in our house. We we uh, we didn't have any heat. We didn't have any electricity, and we were here for about seven days, no water, and the uh, temperature was around zero. And and in the house, it was uh, uh, in the thirties, and we we really were faced with what it feels like to be beyond civilization. We live up on a high hill and, and we're not equipped for freezes in, in this part of the world of that sort. So even the emergency vehicles couldn't get in. And in the middle of that, I discovered that I had built our ecosystem here with a lot of arrogance. Namely, we have a solar system, but it was covered up with snow and ice. We have a rainwater system, but it was uh, frozen. And I had assumed that I was somewhat bulletproof here. But in the middle of that, I was totally humbled. And my own arrogance was revealed to me, my own hubris. And, and here, here's the next piece. The next piece of education beyond this being brought to humility in our own vulnerability is our primary role as healers. This comes as the foundation of education. That we are called, I believe, in this era to begin our education with the education of healing our dynamic within Earth. We're all a part of Earth. We're all inside Earth's identity. And right now, we're the destroyers within that, within that being. But the second piece is dedicating ourselves to healing. And it's only then, experientially, that we are humbled before our own vulnerability, our own healing of ourselves from the inside out, that we begin to reflect on the process. And that reflection is very valuable. So I, I have, still have uh, a number of dissertation students that I advise. And I see that the, when they follow this process, that the component of distilling the experience in the, the service of something larger is education, but only as it grows out of the soil of a humble recognition of our return to Mother Earth and her identity and our willingness to be healers. And only then can we reflect on it in what we generally call education, even in 
the more progressive educational thought. Thank you. I, I, I turn back to you, Jim. Any more thoughts on education? Yes, uh, very specifically, uh, bringing it to the uh, present day and building on what Will has said. I think um, education now, uh, in the spirit of Plato's uh, discourse on education and his masterwork, The Republic, is the most powerful force in the world because it shapes the consciousness of the young. And in Plato's uh, world, uh, you know, the coercion of power and monarchy and politics and business was ultimately inconsequential to the power of shaping the minds and attitudes of the next generation. And I think education today has to be mindful that we are at the moment of apocalypse and that therefore the purpose of the renewal has to be to regenerate the world. And I want to dwell on this for a moment because there's a lot of discussion about sustainability. But you can't be sustainable with a broken ecology. According to the World Wildlife Fund, in the last 50 years, human beings have wiped out 69% of the entire biosystem of the planet. That means two-thirds of the animals, the birds, the fish, uh, the insects, the trees, um, uh, you know, uh, 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 non-polluted uh, lands, uh, the oceans, etc. Uh, so we're we're now existing seven point six seven billion of us on a third of what a full biodiverse ecosystem um, would uh, be comprised of. So it feels to to me that. Education today needs to equip all of us, old and young, but particularly this next generation, which is really ground zero um, for history, with the mindsets and skill sets and tool sets that they need to regenerate human community and to regenerate the larger ecosystem. Uh, because we're running out of time, Education needs to, for the first time um, since the Enlightenment, really link knowledge with action. And if you think about what's going on at Harvard and what's going on at the University of Beijing or uh, Berlin or any of the big universities at University of, uh, of Texas, et cetera, et cetera, they're teaching us, the, the students, they're packing their heads full of information. They are not linking knowledge with ethics. They are not taking a position um, that education needs to equip young people with not only what they need to know, but what they need to do proactively, collaboratively, locally, globally to regenerate the world. And that's one reason why, by the way, that uh, that Ubiquity University has come together with uh, universities and, and institutions around the world to establish a global accreditation council. Because if you look at business, 
There's all kinds of businesses that have dedicated themselves to being green, that are being ecological. Um, and you can get, uh, you can be certified as a B Corp. Uh, you can uh, engage in corporate social responsibility. Nothing like that exists in the world of education. MIT, Cambridge, Oxford, Sorbonne, they're just going along as if the world hasn't evolved uh, for the last thousand years. And we're taking the position that to be accredited in the future, the institutions not only have to have uh, academic standards of excellence, but to commit themselves to being ecologically regenerative and to enhance the spiritual intelligence and personal development um, of their students uh, in a way uh, that, as Will said, uh, is fundamentally regenerative uh, and uh, ultimately healing of community and planet. Beautiful, beautiful, yeah. Um, yeah we can't grow infinitely on a, on a finite planet, um, and uh, so the word sustainable, I appreciate your challenge to that. We have to rethink everything. And uh, I appreciate what Ubiquity University is doing to rethink education and really to help people learn how to think. You know, I mean, it's kind of, you know, I mean, that's, um, you know, and, and learning how to think is, is one of the, one of the, Biggest obstacles is, is quite frankly, that people are usually stuck in their own biases, preconceptions, uh, their upbringing, their their nationality, their gender, their 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 their, uh, their educational system that they grew up in, and it's hard for them to 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 get out of that box. Um, so. Um, and, and it sounds like what you're doing at Ubiquity, especially your global reach, I mean, is pretty pretty exciting stuff. So you're so you're you're you're, you're really uh, establishing kind of a, a global think tank, and it's probably um, not a coincidence that uh, that you. Uh, uh, hung out with Mikhail Gorbachev, and, uh, and when you maybe started to think about some of the stuff, so I, I really appreciate that. Um, I, uh, you know, I, I in the remaining time we have in linear time constraints, I want to I want to bring this back to kind of a political angle a little bit because. Um, it's obvious to us, perhaps, that we can't grow infinitely on a finite planet. But all politicians, it doesn't matter whether you're a Democrat or a Republican or an Independent, they're all for the maximum growth possible, right? Have you ever, have you ever met a politician who's 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 anti-growth? It doesn't matter if you're Bernie Sanders. You don't want growth because there's more jobs. You know, if you're if you're a Republican, you want more growth so that you can cut taxes. If you're Democrat, you want more growth so you can have a lot of social programs. But they're all for 
growth and and there's little awareness on the political level that we can't grow infinitely on a finite plan maybe some awareness started to seep in maybe hopefully i put down some corn pollen to pray for during the pandemic because you know things at least we had to experience what it was to have uh, we experienced very much negative growth and now we're in a v-shape with a lot of growth but hopefully some people have had to think about what they really truly need like will was trying to think about what he really truly needed and um during february when when uh his grid was not functioning as it should and by the way will remember we we only have electricity for 100 years it's kind of hard to remember sometimes right <laughs> In night I used to live in Woodstock, New York, and I remember in 19 I remember reading that in 1924 on the Woodstock Village Green they protested against electricity. It's 1924. Okay, so so just just a, an aside. But I want to so how do we how do we bring in the wisdom keepers to the political process to actually maybe make change in policy um, and you know this is this is what I'm trying to think of now um, any thoughts on that will I go to you so you're wondering about um, developing or connecting with political leaders who are not necessarily captured inside the growth paradigm. Is that, is that what you're wondering? Mm -hmm. Is that what you're wondering? I'm well, wondering I'm, if, if, well, if wonder wisdom keepers who can think in, you know, outside of the uh, box of economic growth is always good can possibly get a foothold in the political process, either as politicians or just influencing them. Right. Well, as a practicing psychotherapist through decades, I would say our mental dysfunctioning in this culture is not so much from thoughtlessness as the inability to feel what we feel. And so I look for that uh, as being one of the qualities that, that I'm that I'm looking for in leadership in general. And to build on something that Jim said, the um, I, I've had an interesting experiment here recently. I have a number of people that I mentor that come here from various parts of the world. And I ask them to tell me in a two or three sentences what their moral compass is. And out of all of the people that I asked, only one person could telescope it into a, a explicit sense of what is ethical. And I have a I have a uh, sign on uh, out near our sweat lodge, and it says, "Elect people of character." So I would say. And that's one piece of it. And the other piece of it is 
elect people who are willing to hold opposites in tension and are not captivated by the paradigm of uh, binary thinking. Mm. And so if that's beautiful. I want to jump in there first, for, um, um, Will, because um, what you said is very profound. It's something that I really deeply resonate with because of, because of being in dialogues where people listen for the purpose of understanding rather than to, uh, to argue for their point of view or to persuade others of their point of view. Um, and and it uh, it brings me to uh, there's two two quotes I want to uh, read out from two individuals. One's Mikhail Gorbachev. The other is Berhart. <laughs> I want you to I want to ask Jim to respond to Gorbachev and you will to respond to Berhart for obvious reasons. But I I uh, um, and it builds on what you just said. Uh, Gorbachev said, peace is not unity and similarity, but unity in diversity, in the compassion and conciliation of differences. And then Berhardt said something that, and actually either you can respond to what, either quote, um, and Berhardt said that peace is not the absence of conflict, peace is the resolution of conflict with love. So, uh, who would like to respond? Yeah. Well, I can jump in. I think they're both right, and I think they're both saying the same thing uh, with different words. The greatest challenge for humanity, particularly at a time uh, of George Floyd and the rampant white supremacy and racism, uh, in the United States, um, uh, which is probably easily uh, uh, one of the most racist countries in the world and has been systemically so since our founding, is to honor and respect diversity. And uh, so that Gorbachev is right, that, that peace is not um, the harmony between the parts, it's the honoring of what each of the part brings in its unique and special way. And then I think Berhard is right. You know, when, when our differences come together because of culture and gender and, and um, language, we tend to fumble all over ourselves and, uh, and get ourselves into disagreement. And that's the time when you want to use force. Uh, and Bearhart's right. If you want to attain peace, you've got to exercise love in and through the differences that arise when diversity comes together in an imperfect world. So I think Gorbachev and, and Bearhart were saying uh, essentially the same things uh, from very different vantage points uh, and cultures. Um, but it means that each and every one of us needs to understand that peace is a proactive disposition of being where we embrace the differences that we see 
not in an antagonistic way or in a subordination of the difference, but in an embrace of that difference, knowing um, that the more difference you can amalgamate together, the more creativity emerges and the more wondrous uh, the future becomes. Thank you. Thank you. Beautiful answer again. And Will, um, we've got about four minutes left, but I want in this in the linear time units that aren't real, um, but uh, that we're respecting nonetheless. Um, and Will, please respond to the two questions. Peace is not unity and similarity, but unity and diversity in the compassion and conciliation of differences. And Bear hearts, peace is not the absence of conflict, peace is the resolution of conflict with love. Right. So, you can imagine Bear Hart and I had many discussions about this. And in, in my background as a eco-psychologist and a clinical uh, therapist, I noticed that we have in our inner world what I call an inner counsel. And whatever I can bring up as a part of myself, there is an opposite. So I mentioned, I, being a Texan, I have arrogance. And the opposite of that is bowing to the power of that which is beyond me within nature. And this tension of opposites, whatever the, whatever the opposites are, it's in the tension that there's birthed larger consciousness. It's actually in the tension that you feel the tension, which we all want to avoid. For example, I, I want, it's common in cultural creatives to, to want to, to make an enemy of the inner critic. But it's only if I bring that inner critic in, in tension with my vulnerability, out of that tension is birthed the larger consciousness that we're so needed. Beautiful. Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you so much. So we have to pay more attention to the tension. <laughs> but this is this is because in there we have a birthing. Wow. In um, going beyond, going beyond our personal consciousness, going beyond what we think we know, uh, dropping that aside. I mean, you you two gentlemen are are incredibly articulate. You're very erudite. You you have a lot of wisdom that you're carrying through you. And yet you're also, you are wise enough to realize that there's something beyond that wherever you, whatever your, your uh, intellectual capacity is or whatever you've accomplished, that you also need to set it down, set it all down and pray and uh, pray for a greater awareness for this time, that this time that humanity comes into an awareness, a reality check of where we really are and that we are able to make significant changes um, to make ourselves more harmonious with the natural world. And to go back to where 
Jim was speaking about in the very beginning, you know, because there was this awareness in antiquity of the integral place of humanity. And as I think Will mentioned later, we went to a place where we began to elevate our sense of humanity. Now we have to rebalance. We have to rebalance, um, and I pray that it is done um Aho mitaku yasen, because there's there's a lot of rebalancing to do. <laughs> but I am encouraged by people like you, Jim, and you, Will, because I know that you're doing the good work and uh, and that you're inspiring others at Ubiquity University and in all walks of life, wherever you be. So thank you so much for joining us on Circle for Original Thinking today. It's, it's been an honor and a blessing. This program is made possible in part by Select Books, Waterside Publications, Bizgenics, and Web Talk Radio. Native flute music by Orlando Secatero from the Pathways CD. Liberty Song by artist Ron Crowder, written by Ron Crowder, Jim Casey, and Danny Casey. Post-production editing by Scout Media Strategies. The Circle for Original Thinking is a grassroots think tank whose mission is to seek out the deep origins of contemporary thought in order to remember and restore heart-centered wisdom for humanity and all our relations on Earth. You can follow this podcast on on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Listen Notes, and anywhere podcasts are, are, are held. And you can go to originalthinking.us or originalpolitics.us. And you can also find and purchase my books, Original Thinking and Original Politics, there. Thank you for listening. And until next week, many blessings of good health and well-being to you. Sweet liberty.